Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for your church. Lord, I thank you that it's you that builds the church. I thank you that it's your church. I thank you for our future. I thank you for what you've done already. But Lord, our prayer is may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come in ever-increasing glory, manifestations of signs, wonders, miracles, and power of salvations, Lord, even as we watch that DVD or that movie of Billy Graham. Lord, may we see that again. May we see that again, Lord. Hundreds and thousands swept into the kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, everyone. It is good to see you. I wonder if you could turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want to speak to you this morning about discipleship. We've been talking about the kingdom for about six weeks now, seven weeks. And last week I came ready to preach. For those of you who weren't here, it was just an amazing time of worship. We ended up worshiping, worshiping, worshiping. It's like God descended in the place and we worshiped for, I don't know, an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm so grateful. I'm just being real with you. I'm so grateful that I belong to a church that can do that. I'm so grateful that I belong to a church that the people, the leadership, because it's not a one-man thing. It's not a me thing. There's consensus here of actually we'll always put aside what we want to do and say, God, it's your church. When you want to do that, let's do that. Amen? I tell you, I left. I was felt so alive. I really know that God's doing something in our body. God's doing something in me that I, I don't quite yet have the words for yet. You know when God does something in your heart, but you don't really know what He's doing? You just say, Lord, I yield to it, I surrender to it. And I'm seeing that happen in a few people. It's a wonderful thing. But we've been talking about the kingdom, and we've been on the kingdom for almost since the beginning of the year. Some of what we've been talking about, how is the kingdom practically released by the church? Practically. Because people say, that sounds great, but how is it released practically? Through decisions, and we spent almost two weeks on that. I encourage you, I think it's up, you can go listen to it, not because I said it, because choices is so powerful in the kingdom. Choices. Decisions, declaration, demonstration, and discipleship. Now, obviously, we'll speak today about discipleship, but how is the kingdom expanded and released through discipleship? I think the answer is just simple math, just multiplication. But I believe with all my heart that when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, even converts are one thing. A convert needs to grow into a disciple. Amen? Disciple means disciplined learner. That's actually what it means. Matthew chapter 28, it says, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Then it says, teaching them to observe. Whose translation says observe and who's, who says obey? Okay, some people say obey. The Greek word there is teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you to do. Now, there's two words for observe in the Greek that the Bible uses interchangeably. It is teria and paratrio. It's two words. Paratrio is to stand beside, to watch, to attend with the eyes. That's what the Pharisees would do when it says they stood and watched what Jesus would do. They watched if he would heal the Sabbath. They observed him with eyes, and the other type of observe is to observe with study, to go and study, to, to observe and to study through, like to go to school and to study. The second type is terio, to keep, to attend carefully, to undergo something. The Moffat translation actually says to undergo change to undergo something, to follow with action. It's an apprenticeship. I'm observing by becoming like this person. I'm observing by doing to become like. Now take a guess which one is listed in Matthew 28. It's the second one, obviously. So that's why some translations say teach them to obey, because there's something you have to do. Obey is kind of a way to say it. But to become a disciple, almost every single time in Scripture, I don't want to say every time, but it's almost every time, it says he called disciples. Almost every time it says they left everything to follow. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed that. They left everything. They dropped everything, left everything, left family, left everything to follow. A convert, please understand, I'm not making light of salvation. We're going to talk about salvation today. I'm not making light of it. Salvation is the greatest miracle, but to become a disciple, Jesus said, if you follow me, I will make you. He will make you into something. He will make you a fisher of men. He will make you. Jesus does the making, you do the following. You do the observing. If you follow me, I will make you. So what happens is many people come into the kingdom and then, well, I'm a Christian now, and that's it. And this is not a heavy thing. This is not me getting you to believe in works. This is not me getting you to believe that you can do anything to earn one little might of God's love. You already have it. You already have it. But it's to observe to become like, because we're being conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. That's what a disciple is. It's through disciples, not converts, that the kingdom is advanced. A convert increases the population of heaven. A disciple increases heaven on earth. Because the disciple's chief modus operandi, if that's a good phrase, is to execute his will, not theirs. To execute his will. Your will, not mine, be done on the earth. Jesus said, I do only do what I see my father doing. And I said this, and I had a person come to me a little offended by it, so I'm not saying it again for this reason, but I need us to understand that there were times when Jesus was on the earth that his will and his Father's will differed. Go look in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours, meaning they were different at that moment. Not that he was going to sin, obviously not. But in his manhood, in his humanity, is there another way, Father? No, not my will, your will be done. That's the disciples' modus operandi. I'm here to execute and to demonstrate and to fulfill the will of the kingdom, the will of God, the will of the king. That's the disciple. Very big difference to a person who's saved. It's a difference to a person who says, I've said yes to Jesus as my savior, so I'm going to go to heaven, versus I've said yes to Jesus as my Lord. He's the king of my life. I hold nothing back. I've given everything. There's no back door for me. Well, if the ministry thing doesn't work out, I'll go. There's it's everything. It's a disciple. Amen? We're going to read Matthew 6, and you're going to say, what does this have to do with discipleship? Well, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read portions of it, then we're going to actually go somewhere else, and we'll come back to it. It might not make sense in the middle, but if you stick with me, we'll be friends at the end. Very important to understand that the Sermon on the Mount, many people said that it's like we see these pictures of him teaching the multitudes. The Bible actually says in Matthew 5.1 that he left the multitudes, he went up the mountain, and the disciples followed him. When they found where he was seated, he opened his mouth and began to teach. Seeing the multitudes, he went up the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So he opened his mouth and taught them. So he might have had more than the 12 or the 120. There's probably a large group of people, but the people he was teaching was what he considered his disciples. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest understanding of what does it look like to be a disciple. Matthew 6, we'll go to verse 19. Do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I'm not going to preach through this text, because we're going to read through the end of the chapter. But let me just say, to not lay up treasure, please hear my heart. I've heard some people preach, well, you shouldn't save money, you should just trust God. Don't do that, because that's not biblical. The Bible's clear. Provide an inheritance for your children's children. That's, that's not talking about your 401k, your savings plan, your time. It's not talking about that. Okay? It's actually in the Greek means don't prioritize this, prioritize this. Do not give priority to this over this. That's what he's saying. 
A disciple, I would give priority to eternal things. And you know your treasure is where your value is. How do you know where your value is? It's what you give your time and your money to. So my value is here. My treasure is here. Now it's a very interesting verse in Luke chapter 16 where it says, if you can be trusted with worldly wealth, he will give you true riches. What is true riches? If it's not riches as in gold and money, what is true riches? It's anything that has eternal value or anything that you can take with you. Friends, consider this. Sometimes the things that make you the happiest, the new car, a new house, you cannot take them with you. They're all staying here. All staying here. So do you consider when he said, I will give you true riches. True riches for me is people, because they go with you. People. Actual people. The other day, I was praying. I don't say this to make me sound like I'm here and you here. It's just something God's doing in my heart. I was praying and I started to pray for people. Just people, humanity. And I prayed and prayed. And God so moved in my heart. I went and stood at Home Depot. <laughs> That's just because it's my favorite place. And I stood at Home Depot. and literally didn't go there to buy a thing. I stood there to look at people. And I just began to weep. Because that is God's treasure. People. People. And he said, if I can trust you with worldly wealth as a catalyst, I will give you people to disciple, to shepherd, to guide. So don't let your value be based on things where moth and rust can come destroy. Absolutely you need those, but let your value, your treasure, be where your heart is with something that is eternal. It's the basis of a disciple. Get on to verse 24. You cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, the God of money. Friends, money is, uh, is not bad. Money is awesome. But you don't serve it. You use it as a tool to advance a kingdom that is not yours and that is not of this world. That's what actually money should be used for. There are some men that I know that are wealthy. When I say wealthy, I mean wealthy. Super wealthy. And I know a few of them. And what's amazing to see is how the ones that have had their mindset shifted where God has given them that money for the sake of the kingdom, how they are happy and free. And the ones that have the same or more amount of money but have not had a kingdom revelation, they're not free. No matter all the money they have, there's something in here. They're not at peace. But money is just a tool. Who wants more of that tool? Yes. <laughs> to do what God wants to do. Amen. Then he says this, therefore, so he's speaking about value and treasure and people, I believe, and all these things. Then he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. That's an amazing statement. What is the church plagued by today for me? Depression, anxiety, probably one of the two biggest, and worry, stress. You know that the Bible in Proverbs says, anxiety in the heart of a person will lead to depression. Depression is not a new thing. That's David wrote, you know, David and Solomon wrote that. That's thousands of years. Anxiety, undealt with. Anxiety in the heart of a man will lead to depression. It's not a new thing. The medication for it is new. I say this is the best medication. I'm not saying um, you stay on your medication. I'm just saying it's not new. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, let your heavenly Father feed them. Are, they not of more va- are you not of more value than they? We're going to talk about that a lot today. Which of you, by worrying, can add one more cubit to his stature? I play this terrible joke on my mother. I'm sorry to bring this up, Mom. Sometimes, you know, in life, you get a little bit worried about something, like very temporarily, like, oh, no, the dog is out. And I always go to her and I put my arm around. I'm like, you know what? This worry is awesome. It's probably helping. Let's do more of it. And so she's always like, Clayton, go away. (laughs) Friends, you cannot add a cubit to your stature. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? (laughs) He brings faith into it. It's almost like, oh, he went there. He brings faith into it. What's he saying? He's saying, friends, if something so temporary as lilies that clothe the field, if God cares for stuff like that, that's going to be taken away. There's nothing eternal in a lily. How much more will he care for you because you're an eternal being? Because he's placed his value upon you because you're eternal and he takes you with him. He places his value on you. Therefore, do not worry. <laughs> don't you love it when it sounds so simple? Well then, okay, great. Well then, then don't worry. That's how you know you've understood it. Therefore, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Very important verse. Gentiles then were not Gentiles that got saved. Acts chapter 10, post-cross, Jesus came, Holy Spirit, all that. This is people who are not kingdom people. They were not included in the covenant yet. What's he saying? They're worldly thinkers. If you want to be in a life where there's no anxiety, no depression, no this, no that, think like a kingdom person. Think like a kingdom person. And I'll keep going on about this. But if you think like a kingdom person, he's saying, do not the Gentiles seek after all of this? Why are you so fascinated with stuff that you cannot take with you? Yeah, I want a truck. Of course I want a truck. My son Matthew, he's always like, Daddy, I want this. And my response to him now is, yeah, well, I want a truck. (laughs) And he goes, yeah, but Daddy, I want this. And I'm like, yeah, I really want a truck. I ain't going to get a truck right now, and you're not going to get that. Yeah, but I want this. Yeah, and I want a truck. And he goes, and he walks away. (laughs) It's a great little discussion that we have. He says, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So how do you go? I believe Jesus gives us three keys. I trust you can find more, and that's glorious. But I believe he gives us three here in this text of how do you go from do not worry about your life, that sounds great, to him adding these things to you. How do you go from that to that? He speaks of three things. Value, the way God sees you. I know I hit this over and over. If you could see the way God sees you, do you not understand that you are more more value than that? He speaks of value, He speaks of righteousness, and he speaks of faith. So today, we're going to look at that very briefly. Seek his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Why doesn't it say just righteousness? Seek first the kingdom and righteousness. Friends, there's two types of righteousness on the earth. 
Books were written about this in the 1800s, more than have been written about now. And I've read a lot of them. Two types of righteousness. Self-righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. That's it. Two trees in the garden. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everyone thinks it was a bad tree because it's got the word evil and good. All the good works cannot save you because it's based on a righteousness that you yourself try to accomplish. Self-righteousness. But the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that qualifies. So he's saying, seek first the kingdom. You know what Luke 12, 32, I love this. Could you throw up Luke 12, 32? It's an amazing verse. It's in the same Sermon on the Mount in the Luke version. It says, do not fear little flock. Isn't that awesome? Little flock. Do not fear little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to just give you the kingdom. All kingdom realities. We spoke about it a, a couple, maybe about a month ago now. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. All the realities of the kingdom, healing, salvation, spiritual stuff, power, prayer, whatever. Prosperity, it's all it's in the Holy Spirit. He will execute it onto the earth through the church. But it's in the Father's good pleasure. He delights to give you the kingdom. He's waiting, saying, yeah, yes, the kingdom. Take the kingdom. Yeah, Jesus is saying, if you want to be a follower, if you want to be a disciple, seek that which the Father delights to give. Seek that which the Father wants to give you. All the other stuff, that'll come. But seek it. Look for it. Because the Father's standing, He wants to give it to you. The Father is generous with the kingdom. Amen? For God so loved, He gave. When you love, you give. So, seek His righteousness. The first foundation after entry, you enter the kingdom. First foundation after entry is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me say this without offending you. A very small fragment, I would say, of the body of Christ understands what it means just to be righteous. And I'm not saying that because I've had discussions with everyone. I'm saying that because of what I see. Not here. I mean, you're all, obviously, you're all amazing. But I'm saying that with what I see in the body of Christ globally. Because a person understands that they're righteous. They live different. A lot of Christianity is learning to understand or having faith in what you've already been given. When you see what you've already been given, you're, you, then you become it. Friends, in the Old Testament, this is, we're going away from the notes here, heaven help us. In the Old Testament, you have covenant with Abraham. Then you have the covenant that we have. They're very similar covenants. They had a, one or two in between, one with David, one with Moses. Those covenants were temporary. Friends, we've got to understand that the Bible says in Galatians 3 that you will be blessed along with believing Abraham. Okay? Why is that so important? In the Old Testament, if I went, said this last week, if I went to a leper and touched the leper, I would have to walk around saying, oh, I'm unclean, I'm clean. In the New Testament, Jesus touched the leper and the leper was healed. It's not just about his power. He's trying to show you what shifts between the covenants. In the Old Testament, it's repentance meant to turn, to turn and to walk a different way. In the New Testament, the repentance means to change the way you think. The result is that you will turn. But the New Testament is different. In the Old Testament, you had to, you had to earn something to have value placed on you. In the New Testament, you get value placed on you, and when you see what's placed on you, you rise to the blessing and the value that's been given. 
It's a whole different way of thinking. Now it's the same with righteousness. When you see that you're already righteous, you will become practically righteous. People are running around in the church trying to earn what God is wanting to give them. Because it's a value issue in their heart. Amen? It's true. So we need to stop being sin conscious and become God conscious. Now we're going to get into theology. And you're going to just love it. Stop being sin conscious and God conscious. What do I mean by that? I mean you need to learn your tree. Hebrews chapter 10. You guys are just dropping all the stuff in my heart. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. The law is a shadow. I have a shadow. I'm the substance. I have a shadow. The law is not the substance. It's the shadow. We get that? Having a shadow of things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices. What are those same sacrifices? The blood of bulls and goats and year by year. Okay? The same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make those who approach perfect. The word perfect there means mature or complete. So it could not make those who approach God mature or complete. Why? Because they have to do it again and they have to do it again and they have to do it again and they have to do it again. He says, for then would not the, the sacrifices, would not they have ceased to be offered? If they could be complete, would they not stop offering them if it could make those who approach perfect or whole? Well, they didn't, so you have to keep doing it, right? Then he says this, For the worshippers, once purified through the atonement of the sacrifice, would then have had no more consciousness of sin. Whoa. Next chapter it says this. Now there is a remission of these. There is no longer an offering for sin. Why? Because now there is a sacrifice that has been offered that never has to be offered again. Which means that that makes those who approach complete, mature, and whole. Meaning there should be no more consciousness of sins. Doesn't mean I don't believe in sinner's perfection. Doesn't mean that you, you know, even if you sin, you can't sin because you're perfect. That's, a, that's an old heresy. Not at all. It means that you wake up in the morning to be a son. You don't wake up to try not to sin. It's a whole different way of living. It's the freedom in Christ. I'm not sin conscious. It's like being set free from jail and I'm in my home and I wake up thinking, I'm still trying to plan my jail escape. But you're, you're out. And I see people living like that. They wake up in the morning not to sin. Oh, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to do it. Because you're so conscious of it. The Bible says the law provokes sin. It stirs it up. It crouches behind the door, the Bible says. Every tree, I said you've got to learn your tree. Every tree, I'll just read it. It's one of those things that you can misquote. Every tree bears good fruit. Every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Very, very important to understand. Do you know your tree? <laughs> it's important. Because what happens, what we don't realize, is that the person we were born on the earth, I keep going over this and I'm going to keep going over it. Because I want people to be free. When you're born on the earth, you were given a tree that was sown in corruption, with the sin nature, with all these things. And you were just doing what comes naturally to you. Then you get saved. That person, old person, died. I'm crucified with Christ. That person died. So what happens is we keep trying to take the old tree and make it bear good fruit. But a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus said, that's dead. You've been given a new tree. That tree will naturally bear good fruit. Because it, why was that old tree bad? Because it was sown in corruption. The Bible says that. 
Its root system went into the system of the world. It went into Adam, not into Christ. So it's going to bear that fruit. And you can chop and prune and try and stress and worry and freak out and pray. and You ain't going to get good fruit out of that tree. You're not. No matter how many good works you do. Inside, the sap is rotten. So you have to kill that tree by dying with Christ to become born again and you get a brand new tree. Why is the new tree good? It actually says here, it says 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That's the new tree. Incorruptible seed through the word of God which lives and abides forever. This is why, I'm just going to read this to you. This is why we preach the law to the lost. I don't preach grace to the lost. I preach grace to you. Because there is a righteous requirement of a holy God. And that's where the grace message, if it goes off, it gets weird. You don't give grace to the lost. There is a righteous requirement of a holy God. That's why Jonathan Edwards, sin is in the hands of an angry God. Because he still has wrath. And if you're not in Christ, that wrath exists over you, friend. When you get saved, that person dies. Wrath, sacrifice, done. Wrath, over. And you give grace to that person. Because if you don't give the law to the lost, you have to show them the law to show them that they cannot live up to the righteous requirement with their own righteousness. You have to put that in their face and hold it there. Try this. Oh, you can't do it? Try more. Can't do it? Try more. Until they fall to their knees and accept Christ. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've done this, 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 this. He said, oh, okay. Okay, then do this. Just gave him the one thing he hadn't done. I can guarantee if he went and did that and came back, he would have said, okay, well, just do that. Yet the woman with the issue of blood came to Jesus broke four laws of Moses. And he said, go your way, your faith has made you well, daughter of Abraham. Because he said, you operating on a covenant way before Moses, lady, you understand salvation. Whole different level of freedom there. You approach the lost through the law. You give grace to the saved. Having been found in Christ and made righteous with his righteousness, but you give the law to the lost. Friends, Paul, great Paul, was accused of preaching grace in such a way that people thought he was telling them to sin more. That's how free he was. To the saved. To the lost, different story. The sting of death, he knows the verse, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. That which strengthens sin in its power is the law. Do you know that? The thing which gives sin its strength is the law. There's a difference between the presence of sin and the power of sin. Sin's power, if you're saved, it's null and void. It's still present. My dad taught me this many years ago. Sin is still present, but it has no power over you. If you see it, if you see that, if you see that you're righteous, one day the presence of sin will be gone. It won't even exist. Can you go to Romans 6? I'm going to say something, it'll offend some people, then I'll show it to you in the Bible. Do you know that you've been freed from sin? Past tense. Past tense. Why don't we hear preaching like that anymore? You've been freed with a D on the end. Freed from sin. Some of you sitting here know this. But friends, you know how many people in the body of Christ 
have no concept of freedom, have no concept of righteousness, have no concept because they've grown up. Can I speak freely? They've grown up in a religious system dominated by control with no relationship with Jesus, yet they're saved. And you can tell it's in me, I'm passionate today. Can we read a little bit of Romans 6? You've been freed from sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, that's what he was getting accused of. Certainly not. How shall we who died die to sin, live in it any longer? Verse 5, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. That's the old tree. Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that this our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Free, past tense. Freed from sin. Let's go on. We still doubt. Let's keep going. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. That's that once for all sacrifice which makes those who approach mature, complete, whole, perfect. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Likewise, you should also reckon your... You know that word reckon is an accounting term. Account it. Take it into account that you've died. I heard a preacher say it like this. He says he wakes up in the morning and he goes, Yeah, I'm dead. You died. And if you died with Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, you no longer live for yourself. People are like, whoa, whoa. That was good news until five seconds ago. <laughs> you no longer live for yourself. Because that's actually not freedom. That's why. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is not me standing up here and beating you say, stop sinning. I'm showing you that you actually have a choice. Because you've been freed. Set free. You've escaped from jail. Go read the rest of that at home, I encourage you. It says it six or seven times in one chapter. You have been freed from sin. And yet I hear even preaching and people say, well, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just a sinner. I'm like, no, you're not. You're a saint and you're free. When you see that you're free, you will live free. When you see that you're righteous, you'll become righteous. Like believing Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. Yet, if we are trying to follow Christ by being sin conscious, you'll promote the very thing that you've died to. If you wake up not to sin. Friends, the cross is not supposed to point out your sin. Let's not step on toes. Let's step on feet and hands and everything. I've heard preaching, and you go, well, come to Christ. You know, they make it so like you're this idiot that just is so bad. And you know, Yes, it's true. We need Christ. But it's like preach that even salvation, we, it makes us so aware of our sin. The cross was not meant to point out your sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cross is meant to point out your value because it's a price that was paid for you. And I've heard the gospel that makes the cross promote your sin. 
and how bad and terrible. Yes, you are. But the cross was not supposed to make you sin conscious. Because it was supposed to take away your sin. He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. That's not the issue now. Righteousness is the issue. Being redeemed is the issue. Being a son is the issue. Being set free is the issue. That's the issue. That's what I mean by being God conscious. I wake up in the morning to be a son. Does anyone have a big coat? Can I wear it? Oh, it's going to be so tiny for me. Thanks. It's not bad. I've lost some weight. This is a good sign. Friends, when you get saved, you get a robe placed on you. In the Old Testament, you had a garment, a warrior's garment, priestly garment, worshiper's garment, you had a kingly garment, you had Levites, you have all these different garments. They were the way of identifying a person from a distance. Here comes a priest, look at what he's wearing. Here comes a king, look at what he's wearing. Here comes a slave, look at what they're wearing. Here comes a warrior, warrior's garments, Isaiah 59. When you get saved, you get a robe of righteousness. It's your new identity. It gets placed on you. So that if you know it, when you walk in the room, when you come into the world, when you go to Home Depot, when you, people say, behold, a son of righteousness. Because you wear it as your identity. And you cannot be prideful. You cannot be like, hmm, look at my righteousness. Because it's not yours. It's his righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. I hope you hear my heart today. Understand the gospel. Understand that you are righteous. I've been asked to go preach at the PHC chapel this week. I'm preaching this. The cross reveals your value. Matthew 6. Do you not understand, as Jesus said to his disciples, do you not understand that you have more value? We read it. Do you not understand that you have more value? than the grass, and the lilies, and the sparrows? Do you not understand your value? Do you not understand your value? That's why you're worrying. Don't worry about your life. Don't, do you not understand your value? Do you not know that you are of more value than they? It's your place to accept that and believe it. That's why he said, oh, you have little faith. He tied faith into it. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. Friends, there's a difference between having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and having faith for stuff or faith for miracles or faith for healing. Or we all want faith for stuff and prosperity and miracles. Let me encourage you. That's awesome. We want that. But learn to have faith in what he's already given you. Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have peace in my heart every day. I have peace by faith. I know it by faith. Now, it's either because I've lived in that verse for so many years, or, but I know it by faith. It doesn't mean I always feel peaceful. It doesn't mean I always feel like I have peace, but I have it by faith. Because Romans 5.1 says I have peace with God. There's no war here, God. 
I'm not losing my identity over a stumble. Oh, I made a mistake today. I did this, I did this. I'm not going to lose my whole identity because I stumbled. I still have a robe. I don't go before God and go, I'm so stupid, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that again? I'm so sorry. That's how people pray. I don't pray like that. You go before God, you're God. Thank you that you're my father. I know I did that. You know, Lord, I was still living from the old tree right there. But you know, Lord, I'm righteous. And you love me. I live by faith. You forgave me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. I thank you that I'm righteous. I thank you that that you're my father, that you love me, that you've redeemed me, that you've set me free from sin. I thank you, Lord, that I'm free. This shouldn't have power over me. And Lord, I stumbled for a moment, but I still wear my robe. God, I just worship you. I love you. You are great. You are loving. You think and pray like that. You watch your life change. Because you're not beating yourself. You don't lose your robe over a stumble. You don't lose your identity over a stumble. Live by faith in the finished work. Faith, peace, life. You have it. You already have it. Because I hear this. Well, God's just doing a work in me, and he's taking his time. I tell you, you know what I want to say? No, he did a work in you. He took you in Christ through death, made you a new creation with the mind of Christ, with the righteousness of his Son. He filled you with his Spirit, set you apart, anointed you, and gave you to bear fruit. He did a work in you. Yeah, it is finished. That's what it is, friends, to be righteous, conscious in your relationship to God. Because you have value. A sin conscious will produce more sin. A righteous consciousness will produce more righteousness. Practical righteousness. Know your value. Have faith. Seek the kingdom. It's the delight of the Father. Do not fear, little flock. It is in the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now why do I say all of this in closing? Because I'm not just preaching this because of the new facility, but there's a sense in me, friends, of just the responsibility of an impact into the city. And we need to think like kingdom people. We need to understand the gospel. So that every person that comes in these doors, man, I long for the day when a thing that you qualify as a bad person, Jesus loves that person. They can come and sit next to my wife and feel at home from us under conviction from the Lord, but at home with us. Because we're free people. Because you've been freed from sin. Because you're righteous. You have it by faith. Amen.